Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. Go to YCharts.com to check out their plans. Call them up, tell them Animal Spirits sent you, and get 20% off of your initial subscription to the plan. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So Ychart sets us over a table showing S&P 500 performance with the day of the yield curve inversion. One month, three months, six months, et cetera, afterwards. And there's some red, but there's a lot of green. So they show the average of the past four times that it's happened going back to 1978. On average, two years later, stocks are up 7%. 18 months later, they're up 12%. One year later, they're up 10%. It looks like the only really bad one was the extended bear market in the early 2000s. So two years after it inverted in, in the February of 2000, stocks are down 20%. That's probably because that bear market lasted almost three years. But wait a minute. One thought. What they don't show here is max drawdown. So True. we know that stocks tend to go up. So you could see 18 months after a 32% return, but they could have fallen 30% before that. You know what I mean? Yes. And so how badly are you freaking out about the inversion because you're Mr. Headline Risk Guy lately and yield curves have been in the headlines. So tell me what your level of anxiety is. About the yield soon, curve. That's a, that's a cheap shot right there. <laughs> okay. I told you that my wife sent me, my wife is in a Facebook group. So she works for, she's a guidance counselor. And she works for the New York City Department of Education. And I wrote about this, that people are absolutely losing their shit because the stock market is warning for a recession, I think was the headline. And some of the responses in this thread were just totally hysterical. A lot of politics, a lot of scared people, and uh, and it's a shame that the public reacts this way. I think I honestly think that the great financial crisis broke a lot of people's brains in terms of the markets and the economy. I mean, if you think about it, we've been basically planning for the next recession since the last one ended. And so I'm I just finished up a piece for Fortune that I wrote. Uh, I, I just hit send right before we started recording this. So I got some stats for you. By the way, let me ask you a question: Is an official publication? Does that mean it's a piece? As opposed to a, a post? Oh, did I call it a post? No, you called it a piece. Okay, I should, maybe I should start calling it a column. Can I consider myself oh, a columnist? Oh, man. Elitist. Yes. Let's do the verbal meme with the Winnie the Pooh thing. So it goes blogger, writer, columnist. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So, okay, going back, I talked about you about this a little bit yesterday. There's been 895 months since 1945 through the end of July. 130 of those months has been in a recession. So let's call it 14 or 15% of the time we're in a recession. That means 85% of the time we are in an expansion. But it seems like the opposite is true where people spend 85% of their time worrying about the 15%. And I understand why that is because guess what? Recessions are not, are not fun. With good reason. Yeah, but here's the thing. The stock market is terrible at predicting recessions. And I've gone over this data before. In the six months leading up to a recession... Going back to 1945, the, the S&P is up an average of 1%. Three months leading up to it, it's up an average of like 1%. In like 60% of the time, three months before a recession starts, stocks are positive. So the stock market is not good at predicting a recession. Pretty much the only time it happened was in the early 2000s. You know what is good at predicting recessions? The yield curve. 
No. Recreational vehicles. <laughs> we got this again, didn't we? But wait, hold on. Before we get to that, I have a question for you. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because people, like, I'm using air quotes. Everyone knows a recession is coming. Right. But if the market is forward-looking, how do you square those circles? Because we're 3% off all-time highs. Because the market, that's why that old quote is the market has predicted nine out of the last five recessions because it's not as forward-looking as people think it is. So you had this other piece that I wanted to talk about where you showed the yield curve inversion mentions in the New York Times. And you went back to the 70s. And this is kind of your, I feel like you've sort of planted the flag on this one using the New York Times archives. You you uh, gave me a heads up on that one. And it's actually really cool to use. But tell me what you did on this one and how you put this together. So I wanted to plot the number, uh, every time the, the New York Times mentioned the word either yield curve inversion or yield curve inverted. And so I did that going back to, I guess, 1976 or something. But what that missed was the number of mentions. And so I then counted the actual number of mentions and did a 30-day ruling like some of the mentions. And it has just grown exponentially over time. And so I think that the reason why people, the civilians are potentially freaking out, I don't think, I really don't think it's because of 2008. I don't think like- Hang on. Do you think civilians is more or less, is worse than mom and pop? What do you think is worse to call- Mom and pop. Like, you think mom, mom and pop, pop is, is worse? Way more, is way more, uh, I don't know if condescending is the right word, but- yeah. yeah, condescending. That's what I was looking So you think mom and pop is worse than civilians? Yeah, because it's like, oh, the, yes, absolutely. In my mind, that's way more pejorative. Okay. I use civilians just people that, that are not market professionals. Yes. Speaking of, so you said your wife had the Facebook group. I, I, I have a non-markets friend who texts me every once in a while about the markets, and he's my contrary indicator, and he gave me a yield curve text with a lot of exclamation points. But to your point of, to your point of everyone knows everything, guess what? Like... The next recession that hits, 95% of the population is going to raise their hand and say, I called this one. I, I've been warning people for years. Like, so, so maybe every, going, if everyone does know everything, it's, it doesn't work anymore. Well, maybe I'll go the other way on this. Okay. Maybe everyone feels like a recession is coming, and so they get ahead of it, and maybe it becomes self, self-fulfilling, where biz, small business owners will stop hiring because they see stuff in the headlines. I I genuinely think that's a possibility. But so why does the yield curve even predict recessions? Well, there's a lot of different explanations. Actually, AQR had a very, very good podcast about this. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the expectations, but more of like the actual why why does this not necessarily predict, but actually cause recessions is because theoretically it it, it restricts the amount of money in the system. Because if the yield curve is flat, meaning there's no difference between maturities at 30 days or 10 years and banks borrow short and they lend long and there's no spread for them, then they're not going to lend money. I think that's more or less total bullshit. Yeah. Do you think Do you think they really cause a recession? Or do you think it's, it's just a coincidence indicator that it just happens? I think that is the explanation for why they do cause recessions. But why I think that might be bunk or a little bit of bunk is because, no, the yield curve is for government securities. These are for treasury bonds. Right, so so banks are not uh, obligated to lend at the same rates as as the government borrows at. They're going to put a premium for lousy credit. So I don't necessarily think that that's uh, entirely yeah. accurate. My my credit union checking account currently yields more than the thirty year treasury by one percent. Right, so it's it's a completely different. So I mean, I do think it's nuts that that the thirty year is below two percent, and and uh, 
anyhow, let, let's move off this topic. I feel well, like it it's is. A lot. It, it is. It, it's interesting. Look, so the Financial Times had a piece, and they said. They, they interviewed this guy who's the head of global rates at some investment shop, and he said, there's a risk that you will never get a positive yield on a safe asset again, so buy them now while stocks last. It, I mean, I, I agree with your piece from last week about, like, do people really deserve to have a risk-free rate? But the fact that people say, like, these long-term assets are never going to have a positive yield again, I mean, that's, that's getting to ridiculous territory, right? I think so. So AQR had a piece about how they showed how expensive bonds are in terms of and it's hard. I think it's really hard to show expensiveness in bonds because a lot of that is path dependent on the future. And and do rates actually rise? Because if rates don't rise, then guess what? It doesn't matter what it looks like. But so someone did send us. So I don't know. The, the stuff is crazy. But anyway, the yield stuff kind of hurts my brain to think about. So so we did have someone who tweeted us. Uh, looks like he's from Europe. And he said, we asked the question, who's buying these negative yielding bonds? And he said, he gave us three groups. One is European pension funds, because they basically have to, they have to match assets with liabilities, which still seems bananas to me that that makes sense. He said, the other one is European banks and insurance companies, because they have to manage their balance sheet. The other one, he said, it's the ECB. And so he sent us a chart that shows Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and they're buying something in the order of 20 to 30% of bonds over the last three years. And the other point he made was US people could still buy these bonds and because of the foreign exchange rates, make money on them because the yield curve over there is is much steeper. So anyway, that's who's buying the negative rated bonds. I still don't think it makes sense, but that's who it is. So RVs were in the Wall Street Journal again. I think we, we spoke about this a few months ago, sort of as a tongue in cheek, but they showed that the last two recessions, RV sales fell. And now they're saying that uh, as many as 523 items could be hit by tariffs, and maybe there was just an oversupply. Maybe it's changing preferences. Like, do people really use RVs anymore? I don't know. I, we have RV parks all around Michigan that I see when we go places, and they're always full. So, Rick Ferry uh, did an RV. Okay. So, what happens? Give me a back test here. What happens when the RV indicator hits and a yield curve hit? Do they do they cancel each other out? I've never seen that before. Is it, so a, I would, is it a double recession? I, I don't know, but. Uh, AQR, they quoted somebody who had a great line, said something along the lines of like, I'd never predict what I've never seen before. Right. So, so a lot of people say we're in uncharted territory, so it has to end badly. And he, he took the opposite. But you know what's not flashing a recession? The St. Louis Fed showed a chart of US retail sales, $523 billion in July, an increase of 0.7% from June and 3.4% from a year earlier. Consumer spending is obviously a huge part of the economy, and that is not flashing anything yet. And we can back that up because we are now in the uh, t-shirt, the merchandise industry. Yes, we have revenue numbers. So we put out, we got some feedback from people that they wanted a t-shirt. We went through 99 designs, which should be a sponsor of the podcast after we use them, I think. That's only fair. Great business, uh, by the way. Uh, it, that's a great business. Yeah. So you anything you want designed, and I've done it before for... We actually did it for the Animal Spirits podcast logo. So we said we're going to make a t-shirt. We put it on 99 Designs, paid a few hundred bucks for it. What did it cost? 300 bucks, maybe? It's uh, not that bad. Well, initially, initially uh, the asking price was 400 and I think we, you know, we, we don't know how much this costs. So I think we put in like that we were looking to spend like 250 or something like that. So we just asked if they could do a little bit better. And they, then they told us that 99 Designs takes about a quarter. And I was like, wow, that's uh, not a bad so, business. Is, it, is 99 Designs a business in a box? I guess, I guess so. It, it is pretty cool. And, and you have access to people around the world and they can show you their portfolio of designs they've done in the past. 
And so we wanted some sort of new whale design. And this person actually gave us the idea. We didn't really know what we wanted. We just wanted it to say somewhere. And they used some of the phrases that we use on the show. And and they made it into an actual whale, which we used. And we went through... We actually got a recommendation from our producer, Matthew Passy, who said, use T Public for these. And that has worked great, too. So this is this was actually not a lot of work on our end. This was pretty easy, right? Yeah, it was pretty easy. So the idea was we wanted to donate $1,000 at least to Fisher House, which provides uh, lodging for family members of veterans that are that are in the hospital. Yeah. So this is a good cause. We're not taking any money off of this. And we definitely learned that you, you probably don't become wealthy selling t-shirts. Oh, yeah. This is... So in terms of margins, holy cow. So... We've sold, and by the way, Ben and I are paying for the design. It's not coming out of the proceeds. And also, we're going to make up the difference, and, and it looks like there might be a, a small difference, which is totally fine. So we've sold 327 items, which let's just assume that the orders are, well, whatever. We, so we've done $682 in, in what we're going to receive. So it's $2.10 an order. And let's assume that every order is 20 bucks, I guess. Well, well, well so, some of them are. So and it's not only t-shirts. It, you can do coffee mugs, stickers, hoodies, tank tops. It's, it's actually pretty easy. And, and I think that's part of it because they do all the work for you. It's, it's basically a, a swag on demand. And so you upload what you want on this stuff, and then they take care of it. Uh, yes, but so for influencers out there, uh, this is not a good way to make money. No, it'd be tough. If you wanted to do it, you'd probably go through somewhere else. But we wanted ease of access, and we'd heard that this is high-quality which also helps. So if you want to find this stuff, Bill Sweet, our, our colleague, actually created a... You can go to T Public and search for like Noob Whale shirt. But if you just go to NoobWhale.com, we are totally sitting on this brand. It'll, take you, it'll give you a link right to where you can find all this stuff. And it's not that expensive. The, the only thing is that you actually have to pay for shipping, which seems kind of weird these days. Don't you think the, the sort of head... Like the mind trick these days is instead of making you pay for shipping, just put it in the price... Like, would you rather pay $20 for a shirt and then $5 for shipping or just $25 for the shirt? $25 for the shirt. No question. It seems like that's the way they should do it. Although, no, it was weird. We paid $12 for shipping. And then the next day, it went down to 6 I thought that that was some, some real shittery right there. Well, it could have been the size of the, um, the, size of the order, actually. Ah, uh, true. We, yeah, that's a good point. All right, we work. So I did not read the S1. I'm assuming you're not an S1 guy. No, I just read the S1 reactions on Twitter. And then basically, I'm an IPO expert. Okay. Same. So their mission is to elevate the world's consciousness. Huh. So what do you think? So did you listen to the latest pivot with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher? Where I did. They talked about this. What do you think about his idea? I think maybe this is going a little too far, but he's basically saying a lot of these venture capital firms now, because there's so much money in there, have turned into pumpers and dumpers. Well, he- I think that was specific to like Tumblr. And maybe this well, and and we work. We're, but doesn't it make sense that there's so much money sloshing around in VCs these days that it makes sense for them to mark up these valuations as high as they can, get out, and then leave the public holding the bag? That's what SoftBank did. So the the Tumblr thing is even crazier that they got Yahoo to buy it for a billion dollars and they sold it for three million. Can can we tell your Tumblr story real quick? Sure. So Galloway kept calling it a porn site. And yes, this is this is what reminded me of it. So, good friend Phil Perlman who is the reason that I started writing and probably a lot of other people as well, told me he to start writing. He introduced me to you because of this Tumblr thing. Oh, really? Yes, that's when we first met. So apparently, this you like... don't, apparently you don't remember. Thanks a lot, Michael. <laughs> apparently, so this is 2013? Sounds about right. So I started a Tumblr and it was getting pulled into Yahoo Finance, 
with a lot of other people that were that were writing at the site. The fact that Yahoo Finance let that thing go is just ridiculous to me. They had yeah, they had free, everyone free content from that. basically every one of the biggest bloggers, financial bloggers out there, and they gave up on it. Yeah, and it was so, free and, to them. So I came back to my desk one day and I saw a gazillion direct messages <laughs> from people that I do not have a direct message relationship with. <laughs> and <Listen>. what <laughs> my my Tumblr account was hacked by an Indian porn bot and it was well, Yahoo Finance was pulling it through. So I think I got an email from like the editor of Yahoo Finance telling me to delete my account immediately. It was just it was pretty You epic. sent it to me and it was the most vile porn. They, I mean yeah, it was it gross. Just it was infected your in your t- and you lost all those Tumblr posts, right? Those are a I lot did. of your posts that you did are gone forever. Yeah. So, so, porn world. so what Galloway said that we worked at is they basically said how do we get the highest multiple and let's just pollute our S1 with buzzwords that fill that, which is basically they now, so now they're they're a service company. Their space is a service. They don't have renters. They have members. They're just trying to get the highest valuation possible, which is fine. I guess that's what companies are supposed to do. Don't you think it's it's almost reached contrarian territory now where if you want to be a true contrarian, you're buying the WeWork IPO. Absolutely. Is there one person who says like this is this makes a lot of sense? I haven't heard one one case of someone saying it makes sense. I saw one person who zigged, but I've never seen consensus so on one side of of an argument here. Right, like like if this is the late '90s, like people are Henry Blodgett is is pumping this thing as much as he can, right? Today, everyone is is tampering. You know, like this shouldn't this doesn't make any sense to anyone. And we love WeWork. It, we, it's a great. We have it people is, that's the thing. There. It's a it's a great organization, but is it worth fifty billion or is it worth? 10, I don't know. So Galloway said it's a he said it's a great company and it's worth maybe 5 to 10. So 45 billion, which is what the latest I guess valuation was from Vision Fund, people don't realize and I didn't really realize this that SoftBank has ridiculous terms. Like they are the first money out where obviously retail investors have no protection whatsoever. So people are questioning whether this is actually even going to whether the SEC is going to like put the kibosh on this. See if they're going to allow it. So does that mean we're not going to see community-adjusted EBITDA on Y charts as a uh, as a metric? So it's basically earnings before every single cost imaginable. Right, everything is an investment, which is revenue. I just, I mean, it's another thing of, of I guess what's been going on in, in this cycle that there's just a lot of money sloshing around and it's allowed these companies. But the his other point of SoftBank competing against each other and setting their own price. So they set the ten billion dollar valuation and then they they themselves bought in at a higher one. And move the price up to twenty or whatever it is, so they're competing against themselves because they have so much money, and they're they're so they're literally setting prices. And now they're lending money to their uh, employees, maybe for the second fund. So this this IPO is very important to them. If this is this could be the canary in the coal mine, like if Ooh. this. Hey, by the way, that's on the T-shirt. Yes, of course. That obviously. If this IPO is a flop, there can be a massive reset in private markets and probably public markets yeah. won't be immune. No, no. Uh, Uber went didn't do anything. Lyft hasn't done anything. I'm saying if this thing if this thing falls forty percent in the first two weeks, but hasn't everyone already pegged that in? That is saying this is not going to do well. Let, let's take the opposite. Let's say this thing goes bonkers on the in the first month and does well. That would be awesome. Does doesn't that does everyone say all right? Let's put our foot on the gas and green light and melt up. Here we come. Melt up. All right. I'm I'm the one contrarian. You know what? I don't really believe this, but I'm sitting on this take. WeWork is going to go up a lot. I don't believe it. No, not allowed. Not allowed. All right. You can't put out a take that you don't believe. 
So apparently you haven't been paying attention. People do it a lot. True. That's type one charlatanism. That's true. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal that Amazon has, I think, 15 employees that tweet about the working conditions in the Amazon fulfillment centers actually being not so bad. So if this is the case where everything is manipulated, we don't know the truth. It got so these, are like, about these are like that. the opposite of trolls. Yeah. So they're like reverse trolling. Yeah. Okay. So this reminded me of the video that was going around Twitter this week of Bill Hader turning into Tom Cruise and Seth Rogen, which is I'm not worried one about of the most it. Ter- I think it's cool. No, it's terrifying. I, I remember Kahneman, Kahneman talked about this a couple years ago, and he said it's one of his biggest worries. Here's the thing: like once this stuff gets out, I mean, obviously you're going to be able to fool the easy people, but don't we eventually get to a point as a society where we just don't believe anything? Like I'm that's, that's, that's my that my posture on the internet now is. I don't believe anything until it's like double, triple verified. Like, because I used to be the sucker who would believe everything. You're a nihilist. Yeah, well, I mean, but but don't we all get to that point where we, we become numb to it once this technology hits, or is it you, you think it's the end of humanity? You believe in nothing, Lebowski. I think I think it's scary. I don't know. I can't believe how complacent you are about this. I think it turns into viral videos, and there's an app for it, and people use people do funny faces on an app, and it's not as bad as people think. All right, maybe you're right. It was pretty cool, and it was hard to tell sometimes too. And I didn't know Hater did such a good Tom Cruise. But, yeah, I I don't know. I, I think it's the kind of thing that anytime that there's something that happens now, there's a certain amount of people that, that jump on it right away, and then you get the backlash brigade who who is policing it. Isn't it kind of like Wikipedia, where if someone changes an entry, people immediately jump on that entry and fix it? What if, the, what if this is the case where that happens and people immediately go, no, 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 this is a fake. Look, I can tell. There's software that predicts that this is going to be a fake. Uh, I'm trying to go away from the end of humanity here because I agree it could be really bad, but I'm trying to. I'm hopeful that humanity doesn't take the bait on that one. Maybe I'm more hopeful than I can't even tell if you're serious right now or not. Is this the real Ben Carlson? Because <laughs> I don't recognize these takes. Uh, well, I mean, obviously we're going to do a whole podcast that we tape, and we're going to switch our faces. <laughs> See, I mean, this has already been done. Face off. Remember Nicolas Cage and John Travolta? It's just an easier way to do it. Moving on. Survey from Market Watch. According to a survey from Policy Genius, 20% of people keep their money management separate from their partners or spouses. 30% of couples say they don't know the details of their partner's earnings, and three quarters of couples share all financial accounts, not even holding a single credit card or checking account separate. So basically, people do things differently. Yes, but the the one that kind of got me was almost a third of people don't know the details of how much their partner earns. Do you think that makes sense? Like you wouldn't ask like how much money we make, like. I get that people probably don't understand what they spend, but do you really think people don't understand what their partner earns? Well, if the surveys are to be believed, and they're not, uh, no, I don't believe this. Okay. Okay. Well, did you see the CNBC survey? Or the survey that was in CNBC? It's from Career Boulder. Uh, 78% of full-time workers said they live paycheck to paycheck. Hey, how come Career Builder's not on the podcast corner? How does ZipRecruiter just get all the career stuff? CareerBuild has been around way longer. Why don't they have podcast ads? Don't know. Just throwing it out there. Does ZipRecruiter have their own podcast? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, it's called The Ringer. True. All right. 78% of full-time workers said they live paycheck to paycheck, up from 75% last year. BS, right? No way. That's impossible. That sounds high. I th- Do you think people don't know what paycheck to paycheck means? Because if if you're saving for a 401k... And it's automatically come out of your account. Does that count as paycheck to paycheck if you're actually putting something aside? Hmm. 
because technically you're saving money. And technically you're also living paycheck to paycheck. I think paycheck to paycheck is probably a crutch that people fall back on and maybe they don't exactly know what it means. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, 78% not, seems pretty high. I think you're right. I also think people don't have a good sense of their actual personal balance sheet or cash flow statement, I should say. They don't really know what's coming yes. in and what's going out. True. So last week I spoke about uh, a product that was disruption proof. And actually, it has already... We had a lot of actuallys on this one. It has already been disrupted. The fly swatter. So, apparently, there is like a tennis racket that's an electric fly swatter. And if you're, if you're a, a, a sadistic person, this is a more entertaining way to zap a fly. Okay, so you got one of these. Here's I the did. Qu- did, you tu- did you touch it? Hell no. How bad would it hurt if you touched it? Well, Ramp said to me, pro tip, do not touch. Okay. Um, so no, I did, not, I did not touch. What's the kid's safety valve on here? There's really no. Like, is your kid gonna is your kid gonna pick this up thinking it's a tennis racket? Yeah, and- it's 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 dangerous. So when you zap, like I just touched a, a zucchini with it, and it it's loud. <laughs> you tested it on a zucchini? Yeah, you're not. You're it not. Sounds like, sounds like an infomercial. You're not touching it. Um, so anyhow, it's not better. It's not better than the traditional oh, really? ice water. Ah, interesting. You think it? You don't think it works good? Because you still have to get the fly, right? I'm not saying it doesn't work well, but like with the fly swatter, you go, bam. This, you're not going to swing it like that. So you have to be more strategic. So it just, it, it's, it's more effort than I, was, uh, than I bargained for. Fly swatter works better on a wall. Electric fly swatter works better in the air. How's that? You're, you're dead on. All right. So you can, have, you can double fist. Technically. Okay. Did you see that? I never have heard of that before. Did you see that Vanguard is launching an alternative strategies fund? For advisors, I think it's for advisors only. They said, "Did you see this?" No, but the, I know they've had one before that had a really high minimum. Oh, I'm sorry. Here's what it says: Vanguard announced today that financial advisor clients will be will be eligible to purchase shares of Vanguard Alternative Strategies Fund starting in early November 2019. I think the minimum is fifty thousand dollars, and there's six alternative strategies: long short equity, event driven, fixed income, relative value, etc. The difference here, the main difference, as usual, is that. It's much less than what is out there in terms of cost. What's the expense ratio? 66 uh, basis points. Okay. I could be wrong on this. I'm going to have to do a little more digging and excuse if I'm wrong. I think the performance for this has not been great because it's, it's, like a, it's basically like a market neutral fund in a lot of ways. Well, have there been that- any alternative strategies like this that have done well over the last 10 years? It's, it's been a pretty tough environment for no and, of and one of my so over the last okay so this thing only goes back to let's see okay so over the past three years it's up seven percent so yeah it's 16 percent over the last five years versus the S&P 500 which has done 50 so I guess not bad for an alternative that's not the terrible. problem is, is what I've said, the problem for a lot of these is in alternative strategies, especially like a market neutral, it's cash plus. So in the past, you were earning 4 or 5% on cash. That's why it was so easy to be a hedge fund manager in the 90s. You were earning 6% on your cash that you're holding. With these, you don't... It, so it kind of it takes the initial hurdle rate down immediately of what you can earn on these things. By the way, you just compared, it, you, you just compared it to the S&P 500. You want to take that back right now? I'm giving you an out. No, I'm, I think that's, a, that's, that's what people do. Like, okay, fine. You want me to compare it to the bond market? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. So over the past three, it's pretty similar to the bond market, actually. Well, there you have it, folks. Okay. But you pay less money owning a bond market, I guess. But yeah, sorry. 
I'll compare it to a 60-40 fund the next time. How's that sound? Good. I think that that's probably a more fair comparison for a diversified one. Do you think this is going to be a big fund? What's the? Do you think it'll actually ever take off? I think it'll be $5 million. Okay. Do you just pull that number out of, out of, out of thin air? No, it's in my model, my mental model. Okay. okay. So I was in the supermarket this weekend. And I spent a lot of time there. And I don't know. Is the supermarket a New York uh, East Coast term? Because we say be. grocery store. Okay. Same thing. I think I call it a supermarket. Supermarket is to soda as no. grocery store is to pop. All right, fine. I, that's not a hell I'm going to die on. I don't really care about supermarket. But, yeah, no, uh, I'm just saying that's like an East Coast Midwest thing. You're an elitist. You say supermarket. I don't know why I haven't used like the delivery services yet. It's awesome. We do it. We used uh, Shipped, and it goes through one of our local Midwest ones here, Meyer. And it is amazing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of options, but I kind of enjoyed it. So it, it took me about an hour. My wife sent me a list. I copied and pasted the text into a list, and I deleted everything as I went by. You know what the easiest thing, the, one of the better things about not going to the physical store yourself? You, like when you go to the store, you always pick out 10 different things that, you, that weren't on your list. When you do it online, you get what's on your list, and that's it. There's no extras. But sometimes you want the extras. Here's the thing. You can text them as they're shopping for you and say, "Oh, I forgot this. Put this in the basket That's too." Cool. So I was listening to uh, it. Was, you know what? It was nice. It took me an hour. I had some alone time. I was listening to Joe Rogan and Bernie Sanders, and uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, I guess, comes off as to some people, it's just like a crazy sort of guy. And uh, there's things I agreed with, things I didn't agree with. But the point is this: the debates are ridiculous. He called them, Bernie Sanders called them a reality show. And hearing him with Joe Rogan, you actually got a sense of what type of person he is and what his views are. Uh, the debates are just total nonsense. And to that point, Ben and I are, are doing a rekindled podcast. Uh, the book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is such a prescient book by Neil Postman. Do you know when he read it, wrote it? I feel like 1979 or 84 or something like that. It's from the 80s, I believe. Yeah, we both read it this year, and I hadn't heard about it before. But So we're doing a quick audible because we were going to do the Muck and Glad ones. We're going to do that next. But we think this one is kind of pressing. And we have to get a podcast in, an emergency one, just in case you have a baby because you have a baby number two on the way. So we wanted to get one in, and we're going to tape it this week just in case. And that's the one we're going to do. Getting back to the grocery store thing. So I was walking down the aisle of junk food, and... I was thinking about the, you know, the, when you grow up, there's, there's houses, kids' houses that you don't really like them, but you just went there for the food because you know they have like donuts or whatever. Yeah. I wonder if there was ever a study done on kids who grew up in households that had junk food. So this is like the marshmallow test? Yeah. Did they grow up to not have? That's a good question. Because I feel like... I mean, that, that's the thing with my kids. If it's in the house, they're going to eat it. If it's not in the house, out of sight, out of mind. This is a way, way overgeneralization. But I feel like those kids were sort of knuckleheads because their parents maybe were loosey-goosey with them. Like, what type of parent has candy and donuts and cookies in the house at all times? Now, if you are one of those parents, I apologize. I'm not trying to cast uh, judgments but well you just you just sugar shamed a whole segment of the population well, I have no because you know <laughs> you know what I have a, I have a very specific person in mind so I know this doesn't apply across the board I'm just just asking okay yeah that's a uh... okay do you have any hypothesis or you no yeah I don't know but don't you think let's go the other way the weird vegan family who whose kid doesn't touch sugar until the age 18 
which which household does a kid grow up better in? I don't know any of those people. Okay, like th- there's a lot of really health conscious, all organic, never sugar, you know, all this stuff. Don't you think those kids, when they hit the age 18, they're on their own in college and they actually taste the stuff for the first time, they're going to go mad. You know, the, the kids in college who showed up and haven't, hadn't touched a drop of alcohol in their lives and they go crazy that first year and drop out? That's these that's these uh, vegan kids, right? <laughs> these vegan kids. <laughs> uh. Can we add that one to the shirt? All right. Listener questions, unless you really wanted to get into my post here. Uh, I wanted to ask you something, but I can't remember what, exactly what I wanted to ask you. All right. We can save it for next week if there's nothing to that. Okay. I, I wrote about like retirement or something. Yeah. How retirement freaks me out. Okay. Never mind. Okay. You've touched upon this previously, and there's a slew of articles out there, but can you earnestly break down who has the most impressive investment track record of all time? Earnestly, I can. I, I like this question so much I wrote about it. You so, did. So do you agree with my assessment? Okay. I said it's I said it's hands down Buffett. Can I confess I skimmed your article? That's fine. I'm 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 I usually read every word, but I, I don't know. You can just read the so I get but I saw the conclusion. Down, I think your conclusion is, is pretty accurate that Buffett has a six decade track record. Yes, of twenty over twenty percent a year. The the numbers are just silly. So since nineteen sixty five, Berkshire is up two point five million percent while the S P is up fourteen thousand percent which is what happens with 20% annual return versus 9.6. The ones that I didn't know before, and, and so I compare, I said like I would have accepted Druckenmiller or Simons probably too, but he had a period from 1976 to 1989 where he did 47% a year, after, which was after his the 1973-74 bear market, which was really bad. So 14 years, he did almost 50% a year, which is just insane. And I said, because he grew it to such a big number, and obviously there's leverage involved and different businesses and private assets, it's almost a $500 billion company now. Like No one has ever managed that much money before and done what he's done. Were those numbers audited? Oh. <laughs> That's what I want to know about Druck. Have you ever seen... People, people told me he's only had five down quarters in 30 years. I thought it was two. Are we sure those numbers are real and not made up? <laughs> well... I mean, pe- people were calling GE the new Enron this week for some reason. Because the guy, the guy who called uh, the Bernie Madoff thing said that GE is is just as bad as Enron in terms of accounting. What if Druck is the new Enron? No, I'm just kidding. Don't send me hate mail on that. All right. Wait. Social wait, media. Wait. Wait. Hold it right there. I am reading. I'm almost done. The man who solved the market. How Jim Simon throwing that in my face launched the quant revolution. This book is on sale, November fifth. And okay, so what is his? What was his track record? Eighty percent a year or something? Total medallion trading profits. Take a guess. Going back to when? The nineteen eighty-eight. Uh, nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. Uh, five million. What? I don't know. Did Total, you, oh, pro, oh, was in. Did you just uh, say? In, I thought you meant. <laughs> did you percent. just say five million? Percent. Oh. Did you Did you hear me say Buffett since nineteen sixty-five is two and a half million percent? Okay, dollars. Okay, I I don't even know what the base is, so I, I'm not sure. All right, so I'll just tell you. Way to play along. Jeez. It's probably got to be at least five figures. <laughs> $65,000. Okay. <laughs> Total profits. $104 billion. That's a lot. $104 yeah. billion. That's more than Amazon's ever done since inception, I'm guessing. All right. So here's the deal. <laughs> since 1988, 66% average returns before fees. Phew. That's amazing. And the smartest thing he ever did, which I wrote in my post, is... 
close the fund down to outside capital. When, like, when did he close it down to outside capital? Did it, does it say in there? Yeah, so, I was think it, it was quick? 2002. I forget. Okay, so he did for fi- 15 years or so, and then he closed it, and it's only partner capital basically so, in that fund. I don't want to give anything away in the book because it's, it's not coming out for quite a while, but Gregory Zuckerman, who wrote the quants, got – there was a lot more in this than I, than I thought there would be in terms of not like – not in terms of what the model actually was doing because nobody knows, but I think people are really, really going to like this one. All right, next question. Okay, I'm stealing that one from you at Wealthcast. Okay. Is social media making new cultures? Like the Facebook culture is different from the Twitter culture versus the Instagram culture. And do these culture members lose touch with their surroundings and family due to their effort of online culture? I guess some people could could get lost in the show. So there was the Wall Street Journal article this week about how girls, especially teenage girls are having like their anxiety is off the charts. And this gets back to the one we talked about last week that maybe a lot of millennials say they don't have friends uh, because they're able to view all this stuff online. I could see how social media could screw with a certain cohort of the population. Yeah, But me. I think there's also, there's there's fewer people online and this stuff than people realize. Like what is Twitter's like 300 million members or something worldwide, which is a pretty small number in comparison. Facebook is obviously the big one. I don't know. Do you think technology reached a turning point when social media happened and they're going to look back at this and say, oh, this really screwed us up? Yes, I do. I don't, this, was, I don't, this was bad. I don't think this is overblown. I don't think there's any putting the, the toothpaste back in the tube, but I think that there's some very uh, legitimate stuff in this. Our brains aren't, aren't wired for this. I, I do agree with that. And, and one of the things I saw, maybe it was Bill Maher who said, you know, in the past, we could read the newspaper and it would always be bad news. And you'd go, well, well at least I'm not that person. But now you see online, people say, oh, man, I wish I was that person because people are putting out fake lives on Instagram and this thing. So it's, yeah, that, that our brains probably aren't hardwired for that, those comparisons. I, all right. Okay. On your last podcast, you guys mentioned the idea of coming up with a list of things you wish you knew about finance at a certain age. I'm a 23-year-old graduate student getting my MBA. I would like to know if you have any general things, no-brainers that someone in their 20s should do with their finances. Uh, what do you got? I think you should start saving a little. It doesn't have to be a lot. You don't have to be a hermit, but I think you start saving a little to develop, to develop that habit. I think my first job, I started saving fifty bucks a month, and I slowly worked it up over time. You were like the you are like the perfect financial citizen. You've never traded. You never like you have a you, you don't have a blemish on you. I'm sure I do. They here's the other <laughs> I'm thing. Sure though. In a, in, I do. <laughs> in your, you know, what my problem is I care too much. <laughs> The the problem is like I think in your twenties, here's what you should do, especially if you're gonna settle down and have a family someday. Travel. Go have fun. Do all that get all that stuff out of your system. That's something my wife and I did is we went on a, a few like we did one trip to Mexico where we planned it a week before. And we went, let's like do some stuff like that where when you don't have the responsibilities holding you back, you can just go have some fun and so I, I would say make sure you spend some money on yourself and have fun in your 20s before you have to settle down and hunker down in your 30s. Those are both both good pieces of advice. Yeah, I would say that right now, even if you don't make a lot of money and you probably don't, it's so easy to automate. So like literally, if you could save $20 a month, just building a foundation of, of habits, not necessarily like saving a ton of money, is probably a good place to be. All right, recommendations, and what spend do you got? Your first, spend your first year or two living like you did in college. Like don't change your lifestyle very much. And that's how you get into that good habits. All right, recommendations. So I rewatched Limitless this week, the Bradley Cooper one, where he takes a drug and it's basically like Adderall on steroids, I guess, and his focus is his brain. And you were talking last week how you are going to write a piece about inequality, and you're going to kick the hornet's nest, and you're probably going to get a lot of hate mail for it. Okay. But I'm going to put out Limitless as a metaphor for income inequality. 
So this is the thing where Bradley Cooper takes the pill and it makes he's just a struggling writer before and then he writes a book, he learns all these new languages, he goes he does the uh, she's all that and he gets a makeover. And instead of using these powers for good where his brain is like functioning at full capacity, he immediately tries to pick up women and then he, he becomes a day trader. And then he goes from being a day trader to working with Robert De Niro who's like the Warren Buffett and he becomes rich and at the end Instead of becoming rich, he turns powerful and wants to become a politician. So that's like a good metaphor for capitalism, I think. Instead of using that brain to like solve a lot of problems, he just decided to make a lot of money and then gain a lot of power. And he went into money and, and politics. And I feel like that's kind of just the way the system is set up to be. And that's why you're going to almost always see these huge, huge, big range between the wealthy and the poor. Right? As long as the Federal Reserve keeps doing what they're doing, you, you're damn right. <laughs> You know what? You know, so Limitless was a very good science fiction movie, and I hadn't thought about it until you posted it. I was like, oh, man, I like that one. You know what else I'll put in that category? And I know I spoke about this when it first came out. And it's not like amazing, but if you like science fiction, this is a good movie. Upgrade. You see that one? I know I told you to. No, I never saw it, actually. Okay. Upgrade. Hour 40. Very watchable. Okay. I think you actually recommended that on this podcast I before. did. It's sort of like Ex Machina, a little bit. Okay. Uh, all right. What else? Oh, I finally read Loon Shots. You were right. The first half is way better than the second half. But the stuff about how they discovered sonar and radars back in the World War II era was just that kind of bloom. I'd never heard the, that story the before. The first half was like amazing. Here's the problem with those kind of stories, I feel like. It makes people with dumb ideas feel like they're probably good ideas. Like I think that there's a good – it's a good thing for a lot of people to like push through and not listen to the naysayers. But there's a lot of people out there with dumb ideas who go, hey, no one knew what – no one believed this stuff at first, so I'm just going to keep pushing my idea through. Right? Is that fair? You're a take machine. No one, no one believed in us. All right. That's all I got. All right. I did like, I did like Loon Shots. Here's though. a recommendation. Have you ever had fresh, fresh mozzarella? Does it count as from Costco? No. I cannot okay. believe that this was the first time I had like warm, fresh mozzarella. It was so freaking good. Just from an Italian restaurant? From like an Italian uh, like meat shop in town. It is pretty good. It's nice it's soft cheese. It was unreal. I saw... Do they call it mozzarella there? Probably. I okay. saw uh, Good Boys in the theater. Pretty good? Pretty good. I would say like a 7.6. It was only 90 minutes, which was great. It was, it was mostly funny, and there was like probably three really, really good laughs. Okay. It's not bad. Right? I think it's pretty good. Like three very memorable belly laughter moments, and, and I think, don't think you could ask for much more than that. I read a book called The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs. I've never read a book about dinosaurs. Oh, actually, that's not true. I read a book about a fossil hunter last year. You probably read a book about dinosaurs in like five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this was incredibly readable. Like, not, you know, not too technical. It really towed the line very nicely for a layman. If you are at all interested in dinosaurs and their history... Highly, highly recommend. I think it's just mind-boggling how long ago they existed. What is it, 160 years ago? 160 million years ago? So or I something? think the I think the 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 asteroid hit 66 million years ago. That okay. was the Cretaceous period, but the I'm probably gonna get this wrong. The Pangean or whatever, like when they first started, was 250 million years ago. It still blows my mind too that people didn't know dinosaurs existed until after George Washington had died. There's just something no one knew about. <laughs> yeah, the numbers, they're so big you can't even comprehend them. Like, there's so much in here that I, that I was like, holy cow. For instance, 
when dinosaurs were on the planet, there was no grass. Really? <laughs> Just no grass. <laughs> what? <laughs> eh, shrubs. Trees. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, highly recommend. Okay. That, that's a good... That's a good if you ever go to a cocktail party, we said last week there's no cocktail parties anymore. Guess what? No grass in the dinosaur era. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. All right. Go to noobwhale.com, right? Buy some swag from us. It's all going to a good cause. Send us an email. What do you say? Subscribe, rate, review. Find us where all greater podcasts are sold. Uh, AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.